So we are going to be studying Romans 11, verses 11 to 32. And then sometime in January, we'll get back to the last four verses of the book of Romans 11 to finish out this first great section of chapters 1 through 11. We're going, to, we're going to choose a bigger block than we usually do because I don't want you to miss the course to the trees. We need to take a big block to try to see Paul's flow of thought here in chapter 11. Okay, let's pray. Father, would you please come and be that one that opens our eyes, that opens our understanding to your word, that gives us light and takes us deeper into our knowledge of you and of your ways and of your plans. Help me, Lord. Give me help today. In Jesus' name I ask you. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to, first of all, just read this big section. Starting in Romans 11, verse 11, all the way through verse 32. So please open your Bibles, or open your phone or tablet, whatever you've got, and let's follow along together. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these also, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. But a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, 
So these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Now I know that was a lot, and it requires a lot of explanation. When we come to chapter 11 of Romans, we're coming to an extremely controversial chapter. There are three major views of what Paul is trying to get at. And I've tried to write them up here in this chart, view one, two, and three. These three views have been held for centuries. They've all been held by godly and competent scholars. So it's not a slam dunk which one of these views you're gonna end up believing. I'm gonna share all three views with you, and then I'm gonna show you the one I particularly believe in and tell you why I've come to that conclusion. But each one of you are gonna to have to study the matter out for yourself to see what you think Paul is actually saying. It all really hinges on verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. Now there's two questions we're going to have to answer in order to understand what he means by that. The first question is, who is all Israel? Who is that? And secondly, when will all Israel be saved? And if we can find answers to those two questions, I think we can understand what Paul is trying to get at in his floor of thought here, in this chapter. So, let me just show you these the three different views. I, I don't know if this is big enough, and I'm not an artist at all, but hopefully you can get a sense of what we're talking about. Here we have creation, and we have a timeline from when God created the world down through the second coming of Jesus Christ. We have the call of Abraham on this chart. We have the cross of Jesus Christ on the chart. And then we have the second coming of Jesus Christ listed here. View number one is that all Israel is all the Jews at the second coming of Christ. So this view believes that Paul is saying that in the future, right before Christ comes back, there's going to be a mass revival and conversion of Jews just directly preceding Christ's second coming. And they get that from verse 25 that says that there's going to be a partial hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and so all Israel will be saved. They believe what that means is that the fullness of the Gentiles are being saved, and when the last Gentile that's going to be saved is saved, at that point, all Israel is saved. So thousands, maybe millions of Jews are converted at the very end of time. That's view number one. And it's held by a lot of reputable and distinguished Bible scholars and commentators. So it's, it's one of the major views. Second view, and John Calvin held to this view as well as many others, he believed that all Israel did not mean all ethnic Israel, it didn't mean the Jews, it meant all the elect, both Jews and Gentiles throughout history. Okay, so this is all the people that God had chosen to save. Uh, that Paul, what Paul is simply saying is that all God's people that he chose to save will be saved at that particular time in this way. View number three is that all Israel is all elect Jews, all elect ethnic Israelites. In other words, physical descendants of Abraham whom God chose to salvation. Now, notice that the timelines are different. On this second view, all Israel is saved. They, they believe what this means is that all, um, all the elect 
of spiritual Israel, which is the elect of Jew and Gentile, they'll be saved from creation down unto the second coming of Christ. And they believe all of Israel is saved over, over redemptive history. Not at one particular point in time, but overall of history. And this last view is similar. It believes that all the elect of Israel are being saved from the beginning down through the second coming of Jesus Christ. So all Israel is saved, and the fullness of the Gentiles are saved. So you have these parallel lines. God is doing a work amongst the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles, bringing in the full number of all elect Gentiles, and he's also working amongst the Jews, bringing in the full number of all the Jews that he's planned to save. And he's doing that over the course of history. All right, is everybody with me so far? I think the yeah, so you notice right away, view two and number three are very similar in the timelines. The way they are different is they define Israel differently. This is Jew and Gentile whom God chose to save. This is only ethnic Israel whom God chose to save. Okay? Now, this one is different from these two in that it sees this only happening at the very end of history, and these other two views see it happening over the course of history. Which one is right? That's our question. <laughs> so we're going to ask those two questions. Try to get answers from the Bible. And then we're going to try to just move through the text fairly quickly to try to see Paul's flow of thought from verse 11 to verse 32. But let's ask the first two questions. First of all, who is all Israel? Is Paul talking about ethnic Israel or spiritual Israel? Is he talking about physical descendants from the Jews? or the spiritual children of Abraham who have faith like Abraham did. You see the difference? Okay. First of all, we need to ask this question. How does Paul use the term Israel in chapters 9, 10, and 11? That will give us a huge clue as to what he means here. If you did take the time to do this, I've done this. I've counted up every reference to Israel in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and he refers to them 10 times. The first nine times, it refers to ethnic Israel. It's not talking about elect Jews and Gentiles. It's talking about Israelites. Let me just show you some examples of that. You go to chapter 9, verse 3. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, who is Paul's brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh? He tells us in verse 4. Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Now, who is that? Those are Jews. That's the Jewish people. Also, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, what does he mean by Israel in verse 6? He's talking about ethnic Israelites. He, we know that because he goes on to give examples of them. Jacob was one who was part of the true Israel. Um, Ishmael, no, Esau, I always get these mixed up. Esau was not. Isaac was part of the true Israel. Ishmael was not. You see, so he's talking about physical descendants of Abraham whom God had chosen. And we know that from verse 11. He talks about that God's purpose according to election would stand. What about chapter 9, verse 30? 
He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did, who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, there's our term again, pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, who does he mean by Israel here? These are Jews. We know that because they're the ones that tried to be justified through the law. Um, they're the ones that are contrasted to Gentiles of verse 30. So he first speaks about the Gentiles and then the Jews. So it doesn't do to say that the Israel here is spiritual Israel because he, he talks about two groups, first Gentiles and then Jews. So these are ethnic Israelites. Or chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He couldn't be any more clear here. He says an Israelite is a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So again, ethnic Israelites. But the clincher for me is chapter 11, verse 25. This is the verse right before he says, so Israel, so all Israel will be saved. The verse right before it, verse 25 says this. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now in the same verse, he talks about Israel and Gentiles. So Israel here can't be Gentiles. There's a difference between Gentiles and Israel. So again, every single place we look in these three chapters, Israel refers to the physical descendants of Abraham, but the ones whom God has chosen to save. Not every single one of them, but the ones that God saves. So, if we're right about this, that would say that view number two can't be right. Because this view says that all Israel is only like Jews and Gentiles. But Paul's not even talking about Gentiles as being part of Israel. He's talking about descendants of Abraham. Are, are we together there, or do you have questions? Is, is this confusing? Okay, so I'm gonna, what I'm going to do, I think view number two is wrong. Because that is, it, contextually, you can't make Israel mean every elect Jew or Gentile. It just doesn't fit with what Paul's been saying especially from verse 25. So, I'm going to take that one off. Now, there's just two views left, right? View one and view three. Let's look at the last, the last question. When will all Israel be saved? This is what view one hangs really heavily on their understanding that first the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and after that, at the very end of time, all Israel is saved. Okay, now, is Paul talking about all Jews at the second coming, coming to Christ? Or is Paul talking about all elect Jews throughout redemptive history coming to Christ? That's the question. Number one, how do those who hold view number one understand Romans 11, 25, and 26? Okay, let's read it over and I'll tell you how they understand For I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, 
that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then, or after that, all Israel will be saved. That's how they understand verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. They understand the word so to mean after that, or then, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Um, they, and then they believe verse 26 and 27 is a reference to the second coming of Christ. Because Paul says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. They believe that's a reference to the second coming. Now, what would we say with this? There are problems in my mind with, with that view. And let me share those with you. First, notice how Paul begins the chapter, chapter 11. He says, I say that God has not rejected his people, has he? Now, those people who hold the view number one, they think what Paul is saying there is, God has not rejected his people finally, has he? In other words, maybe he's rejected them in his own day, in the first century, but he's not rejected them finally because he's going to accept them at the end of human history and save all of them right before Jesus comes back. So they insert the little word, finally. God has not rejected his people finally, has he? But notice Paul's answer to the question. Paul's answer is, may it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, I've been saved. So Paul's point was, has God rejected his people forever? Paul's answer is really weird. No, he hasn't, he hasn't rejected his people forever because I am saved here in the first century. But how would that answer, answer the question about whether God has a future plan to save all of Israel 2,000 years later? His answer makes much more sense if the question is, has God rejected his people totally? No, he hasn't rejected them totally because I've been saved. I'm, I'm a Jew and God saved me. So he hasn't rejected his people totally. Are you following that line of reasoning? I can say some people aren't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this view says that Paul in verse 1 of chapter 11 was talking about a final rejection of Israel forever. He's done with the Jews. He's only going to work amongst the Gentiles. He's through with them. But Paul's answer doesn't make any sense if that's what that question really means. Because Paul was saved in the first century, not the 20th century. Okay. Secondly, verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 26, Paul says, and so, that's the word you need to focus on. So, all Israel will be saved. Paul doesn't say, and then. He doesn't say, and after that. He says, and so. The Greek word is hutos. And this is what the word means. In this way. In this manner, all Israel will be saved. There are 203 times that that Greek word comes up in the New Testament, and it never means then. It never means after this. It always means in this way. And I'll give you a couple of examples. John 3.16, which you all know by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, does that mean, and after this, God gave his only begotten son? It means in this way. God in this way gave his only begotten, no, I'm sorry. God so loved the world in this way. What way? That he gave his only begotten son. 
In this manner God loved the world, by giving up of his son. Or the other references, Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But if you read the translations of that, of that verse, they don't use the word so. Let your life shine in this manner that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I'll just read to you the New American Standards version of this. Let your light shine before men in such a way, that's the word so, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And you can just go to a concordance, go to like a Bible Hub, and you can do a search on all the versions of this Greek word, hutos, and see where they come up. And you'll, you'll see it's always, it's describing how something is done, not when it's done. So that's the first problem. Third problem. Throughout the chapter, Paul is speaking of things in his own day, all the way through the chapter. Let me show you that. He's not he's talking about things happening 2,000 plus years later. He's, it's, he's not predicting something. Chapter 11 is not a prophecy. He's teaching about what's happening in his own day in the first century. Let me show you that. Chapter 11, Romans 11, verse 5. He says, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. When Paul thinks about God saving Israel, he's thinking about God saving Israel in his own day. God had a remnant according to the Father's choice that were being saved in Paul's own day. And Paul's thinking about them as he's going through this chapter. Or if you go to verse 14. Well, let's start in verse 13. He says, But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move jealousy to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Now, who are Paul's fellow countrymen? The Jews. What did he want to see happen to some of them? They would be saved. Same word as he uses in verse 26. So all Israel will be saved. When was that going to happen? Through Paul's ministry. While he was alive on the earth, which is 2,000 years ago. So you can see he's thinking about present day as he's writing this. Also look at chapter 11, verse 30. He says, For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now, focus on that word now, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. The word now tells you Paul's thinking about his own day. From verse 1 through verse 32, he's thinking about contemporary things that are taking place. Not exclusively a tiny sliver of time at the end of history. He's thinking about redemptive history and what God is going to do, how God is going to bring in the Jews. So my conclusion, if I've got the correct answers to these two questions here, first question is, who is all Israel? It's elect ethnic Israelites. When will these ethnic Israelites be saved? Throughout redemptive history. If those answers are correct, this one's wrong, and that one's right. 
That's my conclusion, that this is the right view. Are you guys studying it out on your own? If I've missed something, or if I've not seen something that's altogether possible, I'll be willing to change my mind on this. But at this point in history, this is what I think he's talking about. View number three. Now, let's go back to verse 11, and let's just take some chunks and try to understand Paul's flow of thought through this chapter. And you know what? I'm going to be really happy as soon as we're done with chapter 11. Because chapter 7 and chapter 11 are the really controversial and difficult chapters to interpret in the book of Romans. And I've already done 7, and we're doing 11 today, so it's home free from here on out. Okay, so here we go with verse 11. I say then, they, and he's talking about the Israelites, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, let's just stop there at verse 15. How is God going to gather in elect Jews? Well, he tells us here. He speaks about Israel's stumbling. He talks about their transgression. He talks about their failure. And in verse 15, he talks about their rejection. All of those terms tell us what happened in the first century. Israel transgressed, they failed, uh, they rejected Jesus Christ, and they stumbled. What was the result of all that? When the Apostle Paul would go to a city, where would he go first every single time? The synagogue. The synagogue. Why? Who, who is he going to find there? The Jews. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, he says. He would go to the Jew, he would preach in the synagogues. When they persecuted him and drove him out of the synagogue, what would he do? Go to the Gentiles. What happened by Israel's stumble and their rejection and their failure? The door of salvation was thrown open to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles flooded in in mass in the first century. There was far more Gentiles being saved in the first century than Jews. So their failure opened the door of salvation to the Gentiles, but God had a purpose for even that. What was God going to do through the Gentiles' salvation? He tells us here, make them jealous. They're going to get, become jealous of the blessings that God is giving to the Gentiles, and they're going to want to get it into that. They want to receive some of the blessings that they're seeing and pour out upon the Gentiles. The, the salvation and forgiveness and peace and joy and hope and all of that. And they're going to come to Christ, some of them, in order to receive what the Gentiles are getting. He mentions them becoming jealous in verse 11. He mentions them becoming jealous in verse 14. If somehow I might move to jealousy for the purpose of saving some of them. And he even mentioned this back in chapter 10. Notice verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. Mm -hmm. So Paul is emphasizing this point over and over and over throughout this chapter by telling us how he's going to bring the Jews in. He's going to do it by making them jealous through the conversion of Gentiles. 
Now there's also this word in verse 12, fulfillment. Notice that. If their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? His point seems to be something like this. If God can do something so wonderful and so great by the Jews rejecting Christ, what great blessings can he bring when he saves the Jews? Right? And he mentions the fulfillment of Israel. Now that word fulfillment is very closely related to the word that we find in verse 25, the fullness, fulfillment, fullness, the closely related words. Verse 25 is talking about the fullness of the Gentiles, and we take that to mean the full number of Gentiles that God is going to save. So I believe what he means in verse 12, by their fulfillment is the full number of Jews that God is going to save. In other words, you have these two parallel lines. All Israel is the full number of Israel. All the Gentiles God is going to save is the full number of the Gentiles. So you have all elect Jews that God is saving. At the same time that he's saving all elect Gentiles. During the same period of time, not two separate periods of time. Okay, people are shaking their heads. I think, I think you're understanding. I hope so. <laughs> this is not an easy chapter. Okay, let's move on to the next paragraph, 17 to 24. In this section, Paul talks about there being an olive tree. And he says that the, the stalk, the rich root of the stalk is Israel. And there's branches on this tree. Some of those branches are Israelite branches and some are Gentile branches. When Christ came and Israel didn't believe in him, branches were locked off. When Gentiles didn't believe, they were grafted in. But how many trees are there? One. There's not one Jewish tree and one Gentile tree, which is a lot of people want to so distinguish Israel from uh, from the church, and they say that God's got two separate and distinct plans going on. Well, in Romans 11, he's got one plan, one people from Adam to the second coming, one people group. He calls it an olive tree. Now think with me, were there any Gentiles that were converted in the Old Testament? Yes. Yes? Can you think of any names? Rahab the harlot. That's right. Ruth, the Moabites. Uh, Caleb, I don't know if you knew this, but Caleb was a Gentile. Joshua's counterpart. Um, what about all the people that were converted in Nineveh when God sent Jonah to preach to them? They were all Gentiles. So on the olive tree in the Old Testament, you had Jews and Gentiles. Did you have more Jews or Gentiles in the Old Testament? More Jews. Way more Jews in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you still have that same tree. And you've got Jews and Gentiles on the tree in the New Testament, too. But do you have more Jews or Gentiles in the New Testament? Gentiles. It's the same tree, they just flip-flopped. You had some Jews and Gentiles in the Old Testament, some Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament, same tree. And that's what Paul is getting at here from verse 17 to 24. And he has a reason he's bringing all this up, and it has to do with them, the Gentiles being arrogant towards their Jewish brothers. He brings that up over and over and over, like verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, he says. Or verse 20. Do not be conceited. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare you either. Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. Or verse 25, he says, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Three times, it's on his mind and in Paul's heart that he wants to curb arrogance and pride and conceit and the fact that they think they're wise when they're not really that wise. He wants to prick their bubble and bring them down so that, see, they were cocky. They were thinking they were better than the Jews. Maybe it had something to do with the fact that the Jews crucified Christ and so they thought, well, we Gentiles didn't do that. You know, they started to look down on their Jewish brothers and sisters. I'm not better than you are. And Paul says, no, you're not. Don't be conceited. Don't be arrogant. Don't be wise in your own estimation as though you're somehow better than your Jewish brothers and sisters. And that's what's going on in this section, verses 17 to 24, when he's talking about the olive tree. And then, verses uh, 25 to 32. Now, in verse 25, he mentions a mystery. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. A mystery is not something that's hard to understand. In the Bible, a mystery is something hidden in the past, but now has been revealed. So, in the Old Testament, they didn't understand this mystery. But God has revealed the mystery to New Testament believers. And what is the mystery? He says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and, though, and so all Israel will be saved. The mystery is the way God is going to save both Jews and Gentiles until Christ returns. He's going to save the Gentiles by having the Jews reject Christ so the door of salvation is flown open for the Gentiles to flood in. He's going to save the Jews by making them jealous of the blessing that he's given to the Gentiles. You see, the partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in that way, which we've already described as the jealousy thing, provoking to jealousy, in that way, all Israel is also going to be saved. All elect Israel. All God's chosen Israelites are going to come to Christ. He mentions a partial hardening in verse 25. Now, Paul has already told us about this in this chapter. Back in chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. He says, what then? What Israel is seeking, which was to be right with God, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. He's not telling us anything new in verse 25 about this partial hardening. He spelled it out for us here in verses 7 through 10. There's been a partial hardening of Jews. And there's also this other group called the chosen. Those who were chosen obtained right standing with God. Those who were hardened didn't obtain it. They were hardened. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. So the entire nation wasn't hardened, but part of the nation. That's what he means by partial hardening. A portion of the Jewish nation has been hardened, and a portion has been given eyes to see Christ and come to him in faith. What about this expression, the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, I've already tried to explain that, but I believe he means the full number of all elect Gentiles are going to come into the, to God's church. This partial hardening of Jews is going to go on all the way up until the second coming of Christ. 
until, and because that's where the fullness of the Gentiles stops. It stops at the second coming of Christ. The last Gentile who is converted, Christ returns. So this partial hardening of Israel is happening during the same period of time as the fullness of the Gentiles is coming in. But at the same time, all Israel is being saved during the same period of time. All elect Israel. So non-elect Israel is hardened. Elect Israel is being saved. The fullness of the Gentiles are being saved all through this period of time. Everyone's scratching their heads. <laughs> um, verse 26 and 27. From my understanding, when we come to verse 26 and 27, I don't think he's talking about the second coming of Christ. I think it makes more sense to understand this as the first coming of Christ. The deliverer will come from Zion, and what will he do? Bring judgment on the world? Burn the world and bring everybody into the new heavens and the new earth? No, it says he'll remove ungodliness from Jacob and take away their sins. Well, Jesus did that as the first coming, through the cross and the resurrection. He provided salvation for sinners. What about verses 28 to 32? 28 and 29. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, which is Israel, the same Israel he's been talking about, which is elect Israelites. They are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, meaning he'll never take it back. Once he gives the gift, he doesn't take it back. It will never be revoked. The way I understand this is that he's talking about these elect Israelites. At one time, they were enemies for your sake. They rejected Christ, so the gospel would go to the Gentiles. But at a later time, God, because of his choice of them, called them into his kingdom, and now they're beloved. They're the beloved of God, the chosen of God, the saved of God, because they've been brought into the kingdom. And part of that has to do with their beloved for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made promises to the patriarchs that he would not only enable them to know him, but even their seed after them, their descendants after them. And God is fulfilling that promise by bringing in elect Israelites throughout history. He's never totally cut them off, but he's still saving a remnant from the Jewish people. And then the last three verses, 30 to 32. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, let me rephrase that for you. For just as you Gentiles once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of the Jews' disobedience. So these also now, these Jews, have, become, have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you Gentiles, it will provoke them to jealousy, so that they, the Jews now be, may be shown mercy. He's saying the same thing he said back in verses 11 to 14. The same process by which God is going to save them. For God has shut up all in disobedience, Jew and Gentile, so that he may show mercy to all. Nobody will deserve salvation on the final day when we're surrounding the throne. God has shut up all in disobedience so that anybody who is part of his kingdom on that final day will only be able to give the praise to God and his mercy, not to their own merit or their own works or their own worth like that. It's the mercy of God. 
Okay, so that's, that's the first part. If you have questions, we'll, we'll take some Q&A time. Let's draw some application. And I have two points of application. This just took a bit of thinking and prayer to come up with something because it's so, it's really, the whole thing is about how to interpret the passage. But I think there are things that we can apply here. Number one, beware of spiritual pride because that's what Paul told these Gentiles. Beware of spiritual pride. You say, well, I'm not arrogant towards Jews. Right, and I'm not either. But I have been tempted to be arrogant towards other professing Christians, especially professing Christians that come from mainline denominations that have become very liberal. For example, the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church, some parts of the Presbyterian Church, the Anglican or the Episcopal Church. These mainline denominations, many of them have become liberal, meaning they reject the blood atonement of Christ, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection. They spiritualize these things. They basically have rejected the gospel. But you know how Paul says that you Gentiles have been built on the rich root of the olive tree? In a sense, we Christians today are built upon the rich root of some of these early mainline denominations. When they started out, they were not liberal. They were on fire evangelistic churches. Luther was evangelical. John Wesley was evangelical. George Whitfield, who was part of the Calvinistic Methodist Church, was an evangelist. These, these men believed the Bible and they preached the Bible. Um, we could keep mentioning people over and over if we wanted to. We stand on their shoulders. We are better off Christians because of the rich heritage that God has given us in the Reformed movement, the Reformed evangelical movement. So we need to be careful that we don't become prideful and arrogant and conceited. Rather than becoming prideful and despising those who have become liberal, why not pray for them? Yeah. Pray that God could revive them once again. Many of them have uh, rejected the idea that homosexuality is sin. They, they uh, ordain gay pastors to their churches. And so we have the tendency just to say, well, that's it. I mean, they're, they're gone. They've gone so far away from the Bible that they can never return. But only God knows that. And God is able to turn anyone back around. And God is a God of miracles. So I want to encourage you, repent of spiritual pride. Pride is sin. Pride is ugly when it's in us. And we can get into the habit of making pronouncements on you know, this person's saved, this person's not saved. And probably in many cases where we can be right just by looking at their life, but we can't be 100% sure because God knows the heart of all men. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, do not go on pronouncing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. We will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. I think we just need to be careful. Tread lightly. Pray for people that we think have fallen or apostatized from the true faith. That God can still reach them and bring them back and bring them in. So that's the first application. Second one, be afraid of not persevering in God's kindness. In chapter 11, 
I'm trying to find the specific verse where he tells them to I'm just going to start reading from verse 20. Quite right. They were broken off from their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Here it is. Do not be conceited, but fear. Paul is exhorting these Gentile Christians to fear, to be afraid. I mean, that's a weird exhortation. It's in the Bible. He wants them to be afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of not persevering to the end. Because he goes on to say, if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Behold the kindness and severity of God to those who felt severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Fear not continuing in God's kindness. Fear getting a hardened heart so that Christ no longer is lovely to you. Or he's not the one that fills your vision as the most important person, the, the jewel, the treasure hidden in the field. He just becomes ho-hum and blasé and you're not that excited about Jesus anymore. Fear that. Fear becoming just numb and having a spiritual stupor when it comes to spiritual things. Be afraid of that. And we say, well, boy, that sounds like Paul's saying that Christians can lose their salvation. And it does, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like that. There's a problem with that because he's already told us in, in this same book that they can't. Like in chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, every single person who is justified is glorified, according to Romans 8.30. Romans 8, 37 through 39, there's nothing that can separate a true Christian from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he tells us in this chapter that the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. So, whatever he's saying here in chapter 11, I don't think we can take to me that he's thinking about individual Christians losing their salvation. But I think he is talking about the necessity of all Christians persevering to the end as a proof that God has regenerated them. If you don't persevere to the end, the Bible doesn't give you any hope that you're going to make it to heaven. You must persevere. Perseverance is essential to the Christian life. And it is inevitable to the regenerated person's life. A regenerated person will persevere. But don't take it for granted. Don't coast. Don't kick back and think, oh, I don't really need to seek God that hard anymore. Because God is saving me. I'm just going to rest and I'm just kind of live in the flesh for a while and I'm going to indulge myself. Don't do that, brothers and sisters. Jesus said, if anyone will follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The Christian life is not coasting. It's not kicking back. It's not indulging yourselves. It is crucifying the flesh. It's denying the flesh. It's taking up the cross of Christ, and it's going forward every single day. And never forget that. Just because we believe in the security of the believer does not mean that we think that you can kick back and coast and quit seeking God and somehow persevere to the end. You need to persevere, brothers and sisters. And this is also another truth that is taught all over the scripture. I'll just read a few to you. Uh, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews liked this doctrine because he brought it up a lot. <laughs> Hebrews 4.1, he says, Therefore, let us fear. There's a second exhortation to fear. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it. Fear. Lest you possibly come short of the rest that I'm talking about. Or go back one chapter to Hebrews 3. Look at verse 12. Take care, brethren, 
that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our insurance, firm until the end. How do you know if you would become a partaker of Christ? One of the ways is you will hold fast the beginning of your assurance in Christ until the end. And if you don't do that, you did not partake of Christ. So in one sense, we are proving by our life that we are one of those full number of Gentiles that God has chosen to save. You're proving by your life every single day you wake up and you say, Jesus, I believe in you. How can I serve you today? Purge me of sin. Bring righteousness out of my life. Let me glorify you, Lord. Let me persevere. Let me seek you with all my heart. We're proving out our election. We're making our calling and election sure through perseverance. So brothers and sisters, persevere. We face all kinds of things, don't we? Satan's temptations that he throws at us. God ordains trials that we must walk through. We've got, we've got a lot in our life that we're going to have to face and persevere through. But God, the same God that called you is faithful. He will bring it to pass. You can trust him. He will enable you to give you the power to go through any trial that you face and come out the other side a believer. Not having apostatized, not having fallen away, not having become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, but being victorious in him. Look to Christ. Christ has the power to enable you to persevere to the end. Look to him and believe and trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a sovereign God with a sovereign plan and there's nothing that can stop it. The devil can't stop it. People can't stop it. Hitler's and Mussolini's can't stop it. There's nothing that can stop your sovereign plan. You're going to save a full number of Gentiles and a full number of Israelites and you're going to come back and you're going to separate the sheep from the goats and the sheep are going to go with you into your everlasting kingdom prepared for them before the foundation of the world. Lord, we are thrilled to know that we have such a rock to stand on. But we pray that we would never get cocky, never prideful or arrogant or conceited, never become such that we indulge ourselves and, and, and stop striving towards the goal that you've called us to. So Lord, let our, let our Christian lives be balanced by all of the truth in the Word of God. Because it's all there for our good. Let the truths that we need, Lord, come through today to our hearts. And may they inspire and encourage us and challenge us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.